Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, a couple announcements <coughs> before we get started. The first one is I want to let all of you know, in case you have not heard already, that FCQ will be offering uh, Financial Peace University very soon. And this is a Dame, Dave Ramsey class. Uh, he is a very famous Christian financial kind of guru. Um, uh, most Christian... <coughs> If you've been in the Christian world for a decade or so, you've probably heard of him and maybe you've heard of the class. Thousands upon thousands of testimonies about how people's lives have been changed um, by going through it. And so Chris Watson uh, and Jason Watson will be leading it for us. They've graciously offered to lead it. They've been through it. They can tell you how much it changed their lives. Uh, and so um, one of the kind of unspoken things that happens in the church and goes on in the church is... Um, we don't always do a great job of talking about money. Uh, when we do, it's usually, e- either in a very greedy way or a very guilty way. Okay? Um, this class is an opportunity for neither of those approaches to happen. Okay? This is an uh, approach where we say, let's see where our finances are at personally. Right? You're not going to have to share your budget with everybody else. Uh, and then how can we improve? Right? I think we all want to improve financially. Um, particularly if you're in debt, Dave Ramsey has a great strategy and, and great tips for how to get your debt under control. At the church, we just got our mortgage paid off, and so as an organization, we felt the weight of being out of debt now and the freedom that comes with that. And so um, the class starts on March 31st, which is very soon, and so I wanted to let you know um, just so that you don't miss out on the opportunity to sign up for the class. So there's a short window to sign up. Um, so please know that that's being offered. Um, if you know anybody else who might like to uh, participate, um, this is such a popular class that usually one or two churches will be hosting it in an area, and people from other churches or other Christians might join in on the class. Um, so feel free to spread the word. Uh, it's open up to anybody. Um, but particularly, we wanted to make sure that's in front of you, uh, and I'll be doing this uh, until the class starts, so that if you want to sign up, you can sign up and you won't miss that deadline. I would say even if you're interested but not sure that you can commit, go ahead and put your name on the list uh, so that more information can be uh, given to you. Um, now with that, uh, today is an important day in the church calendar uh, as we continue through the season of Lent. Today is what we call Palm Sunday. It's the day the church remembers Um, The day many, many, many years ago that Jesus walked into Jerusalem um, during the last last week of his life uh, before his crucifixion and resurrection. And most of us know the story of Palm Sunday pretty well. He has this kind of triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the disciples are excited and they're pumped and the crowds are excited and they're pumped. But as you're reading the story, and as we read the story, knowing what will happen eventually, there's also this kind of cloud of doom over Jesus' head, as we know that things are going to turn south in Jerusalem, as we know that Sunday is going to lead to Friday, to his death, his crucifixion, and that Friday will then lead to Sunday again, to his resurrection, to his victory over the grave. And so on this Palm Sunday... Um, we've remembered that. We'll be finishing up our series in the book of Amos. So if you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to Amos chapter 7. Um, we've been preaching through this book um, for the season of Lent, and we'll finish it this morning. 
And I want us to read Amos this morning and think about him in the context, the overall context of Palm Sunday, of a journey with Jesus into Jerusalem um, for what will happen, for uh, a journey to the cross and then a journey beyond the cross to um, the empty tomb, the resurrected Christ and the ascended Christ in power. Um, we'll read Amos 7 through 9, but we won't actually read all three of the chapters. There'll be a lot of text to read. Um, what I want to do instead is summarize and point out for you the three most significant points in these three chapters. And then I would encourage you, if you'd like to, during the week, to go ahead and read through all of them together. Um, two more announcements before we get started in the Amos text. The first is, again... Because it's Palm Sunday, we are walking towards Good Friday, um, the day Jesus was crucified. We will have a Good Friday service at 6 p.m. this Friday. You're all invited. Please put on your calendars. Um, for those who attend, we usually have a good turnout. It's usually one of the more special services of the year, um, along with Christmas Eve. And so we invite you to come. If you've gotten a rock um, that you've been holding on to as a symbol of sin in your life, Please bring the rock, and you'll have a chance to um, use that and to let go of that on our Good Friday service. And then, of course, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And so, if you weren't here last week, um, we do have some um, Easter invite tools for you. Um, we've got a kind of postcard that you can individualize and mail. Um, I, this past week, mailed out over 55 individualized handwritten notes to people inviting them to Easter. People who maybe come to FCQ but never gotten involved, or people who I know don't have a church home, or I know don't have a relationship with Christ, okay? Um, the challenge that I'm giving each of you is maybe think of three to five people uh, who you know, uh, who you can <coughs> extend a, an invite to, maybe a personalized invite, a handwritten note, or a face-to-face -face invite. And we've also got business cards, um, which are kind of easy to carry around, has all the information. You can kind of leave it somewhere if you want. And then the magnets, which are just really cool. Um, and so a lot of you were able to pick up some of this on your way out. There was on your seats last week. We still have some um, on the credenza out there. If you weren't able to get some, please grab some on your way out. Um, and also, please don't worry about wasting them, okay? Uh, so if you have an ambitious goal leaving service today and you pick up a lot of the cards and the magnets and you don't happen to get around to handing out every single one of them, um, our feelings aren't going to be hurt, okay? We're not going to hunt you down. Um, the, these expire after next Sunday, okay? So it's not like we need to hang on to every single little one of them that we have. Um, and so for some of you, I'd encourage you to get creative, right? There might be ways this week where you could really step out of the box and uh, go meet some people and hand out some magnets and things of that nature and invite them to Easter Sunday. Um, it is the uh, most opportune time to invite someone to church, which is why we make tools like this for you. Um, and we will say this as well. Um, we do expect and, and usually have a lot of visitors on Easter Sunday. And so in some sense, next week will be a circus. Um, not a bad circus, but the best kind of circus, right? Where there's all kinds of people here to hear um, one of the most important messages that a human being can possibly hear. Um, what that does mean is from our regulars, which would, which would be you, um, we'd ask that you get here a little early, uh, a little earlier than normal, 
um, than our ish starting time. Um, <laughs> if you could get here around 10.30, 10.35, that'd be great. Um, if you could kind of come congregate in the sanctuary, we'll have every chair set up. It'll be, be pretty tight in here. Um, last year, we ran 140 people, um, which is more than the fire marshal would want us to have in this building. Uh, and so if we look at numbers like that again this year or higher, um, there's a good chance that some of our regulars might have to give up a seat uh, and stand up or go in the hallway and I'll preach really loud for you uh, or something like that. Um, but I encourage you um, at the start of service uh, to try to sit as close to the front as possible, fill up the front couple rows, and then also move to the middle um, so that visitors don't have to walk um, past people and don't have to awkwardly come in and, and sit on the front. Um, those are just two small things you can do to really help their experience uh, feel welcoming here next week. And so um, please, please, please be thinking about who you can invite um, and who can experiencing, experience this life-changing uh, message. Um, let me know if I can help in any way. Uh, and then um, pray for Easter Sunday. It's an exciting Sunday. Um, again, it's a circus, but it's the best kind of circus um, that there could be. Uh, in the world and for the church and so um, we're moving that way and it all starts today on Palm Sunday uh, and so with the um, journey in our minds and with our starting point at Palm Sunday um, we look at Amos chapter 7 through chapter 9 um, now this three chapters in the book of Amos concluding the book contain five visions so Amos sees five things and they're kind of symbolic representations of the judgment that's going to come upon Israel because of her sin. That's what most of the book of Amos has been about. There's a few interludes during the visions. Um, Amos has a confrontation with the high priest at the temple who tells him to stop saying these things, to go away, go back home. Um, there's two long series of um, proclamations of judgment and destruction between the visions. And then Amos 9 ends in a... Uh, kind of glimmer of hope, uh, a promise of future redemption um, that hangs out for the Israelites. So again, like I said, we won't read all of the chapters. I'll point you out, I'll point out a few characteristic passages. Um, really what I want to do though today is highlight the three most significant themes in these three passages, okay? And they are this, um, sin, the danger uh, and um, reality of sin, and then Prayer, the importance and the power of prayer, and then redemption, uh, and, and the hope, uh, the bedrock hope that we have in Christ of our redemption. And so we start with sin, um, which is a theme that has been here throughout the book of Amos. If you'll read with me, we'll look at Amos chapter 8, starting verse 4. He says this as an indictment to certain people in Israel. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the epaph small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Here's what we've seen so far, right? This is the crime's... Um, that Israel are being indicted of. Um, they're playing religious games, celebrating new moon festivals and 
the Sabbath, but even on the Sabbath, they're just waiting, right, until they can get back to the business week and take advantage of people um, and deal in shady business practices. And, and Amos describes that as, as selling um, the poor for silver, selling the needy for sandals. Um, and so the, the Israelite people are uh, an oppressive people. Um, the wealthy, the top, um, they have created such a system of injustice that Amos um, brings judgment against them. In verse 7, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation. If you're a close Bible reader, you know this is a reversal of a formula that you find elsewhere. Where God says one day he'll take all of our mourning and turn it into laughter and dancing. Uh, he, here it's a reversal. They are feasting and singing. And he's going to reverse that into morning and lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist, baldness on every head. These are signs of someone in mourning. I'll make it like the morning for an only son, the death of your only son, the end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread or, or thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They'll wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They'll run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Again, similar to the rest of Amos, we have Israel being called out for their sins. Sins of oppression and injustice. Sins of not treating other people the way they need to be treated. Um, We've mentioned this before, and, and there's really not a possibility of overstating this when you go through the book of Amos. Amos, when he approaches Israel, when he approaches the people of God, is not too concerned with their personal sins. He doesn't say, you have been cussing a little bit too much. You've been drinking a little bit too much. Um, Those clothes you're wearing are a little too revealing. Um, You've not been spending your time, enough time in quiet time, okay, reading the scriptures, those kind of things. He says, no, you've not been treating other people well particularly with the money and the wealth that you have. He says people with money and wealth, they should, instead of being oppressive to the poor, instead of allowing injustice to continue, they should be fighting for the poor. They should be giving generously. And the fact that they're not is an indictment against them. They act religious, but they're simply trying to hide their crimes against humanity. The truth of Amos is that God cares how we treat other people. And he cares particularly how we treat them when it comes to business and money. Something we don't talk a lot about, again, in the church. Um, But something that is undeniably true through the scriptures. These are important sins to God. I've rarely talked to a businessman who has not been faced with an ethical dilemma at his job. um, Where... There's a shortcut presented to him, uh, or maybe commanded to him uh, by a boss uh, to maybe make some more money, to, to increase the profit, to make the shareholders happier, but that seems to cross an ethical boundary. 
would involve lying or manipulation, things of that nature. Um, this is a real issue for Christians in the workplace. And this is a real issue where, where Christians and pastors and churches have to stand up and say you, you can't segregate out parts of your life. You can't practice the Sabbath and, and go to church and then wait until Monday so that you can go back into the real world and function the way the real world functions. Um, Christians are called to act like Christ at all times. Even if that costs you the promotion or the raise or even the job. None of that is to say that's easy. Okay, I'm not a high-powered businessman. Um, we have lots of them in our congregation. I'm, I've never been in that situation. I've never had to face that temptation. Um, there are shortcuts when it comes to pastoring. There are ways to get things done as a pastor that are um, less than ethical. And so I face temptations of that nature. Um, but for the Israelites, this is one of the things where maybe we need to learn from their mistakes. Um, Christians should be distinctively Christian even in how they do business. We might say especially in how they do business. The call for Christians is not to not be lawyers and not be doctors and not be um, politicians and not be um, geologists and not be engineers. It's to be Christian geologists and engineers and bankers and, and lawyers and doctors. It's to, um, even in those settings, always act Christ-like and present a Christ-like witness, um, no matter what the temptation might be. Um, we're also reminded here again of how much God cares about how we use our wealth. We're in, a, in an ironic situation in world history where we have lots of stuff and lots of wealth, and yet most of us actually are living in debt. Um, we're, we're, we're living in a kind of a house of cards. The world almost is living in this house of cards where everything's built on kind of these fake money transactions um, with no real money passing hands, just promises, um, credit debt, um, loan debt, things of that nature. Um, the scriptures, I think, make it very clear. Um, while they wouldn't imagine a world of ours where perhaps you have good debt and bad debt or, or more manageable debt, right, like a, a house Right, where you have equity versus credit card debt, where um, it's maybe more predatory and, and more harmful for you and your finances. Um, while the scriptures might not imagine that complex of a situation, the scriptures are very clear that, that Christians should not be people who live above their means. And I would, I would go a step beyond that and say, I, I think the scriptures are clear that you shouldn't be living at your means. If you're spending all of the money that you have on yourself, then you're missing out on all kinds of commands in the scriptures to be generous, to give. Um, whether that's to support the church or to support other organizations that help um, those who are needy and oppressed and voiceless in the world. Um, you know, I don't see names or numbers when it comes to tithing at the church. I've never talked about tithing or preached about tithing. Partly because we've never had a problem with it. You've always been very generous to us. Um, but we do, we do have the numbers 
uh, you know, overall anonymously, and we can run the statistics. Um, and even when we did the survey, right, it, it seemed as if the large percentage of our congregation gave less than two and a half percent of their income to the church, um, which might seem really low for some people if you have in your mind an idea that all Christians should give 10% of their income. Um, you can imagine, though, if you were to look at just our congregation, even the hundred of us um, with the kind of jobs that we have, if everyone was giving 10%, we would not be able to do even handle all the money, right, that was coming in. Um, but this is close to national average. Most churches actually get about 1.7% of the, the money that their congregation makes, um, which, which I think is, is low and disappointing. Um, I think there's multiple factors to this, right? Um, for some families, you, you need your money to make your ends meet so that you don't go into debt. Right, um, I have a friend who uh, tells the story of his grandfather who would actually go into debt to pay his tithe because um, it was that important to him. And it was like, okay, well maybe, maybe if you're having to go into debt to pay your tithe, you should you should try to get your financial situation figured out a little bit better and not worry about your tithe necessarily right now. Um, but it's, a, it's important that Christians have their finances in order um, so that they can have the flexibility for the Spirit's prompting um, to be generous and to support the things that God has called them to support, um, to help people the way that God has called them to help. That's one of the biggest, I think, uh, accomplishments we've had at the church uh, since I've been here. Uh, as a 20-year-old coming on at the church who knew nothing and knew how to do anything, um, one of the things we were able to do because of smarter people than I um, forming a team around me and, and bringing their leadership and wisdom was to get our finances in order. And the way that that's paid off is it means in the last year we're incredibly flexible. When, when we have a family who's behind on a mortgage payment, we make the payment for them. It doesn't have to be a long drawn out meeting. It doesn't, it doesn't affect us, right? When, when there's a cause that we want to jump behind, we jump behind that cause. We don't have to run the numbers for three years and see how much that's going to hurt us or put us behind. Um, being able to get financially settled, right, has opened up doors of ministry that we would have never imagined five or six years ago um, that we could have. Uh, and it's the same individually. Um, so maybe not too much of a shameless plug for our Financial Peace University, right? But, but if that, that is you, um, and I, I have to believe it's more of us than maybe we'd be willing to admit who struggle with finances and living paycheck to paycheck and um, giving generously the way they feel God has called them to give um, or who struggle in debt, um, that this would be a great opportunity um, to come and sit and and think about some biblical principles and, and some tips that people have used and have been proven to be helpful um, in order to help Christians get their finances back in order. Um, continuing on this theme of sin, if you look at Amos 9, verse 7, he says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? So this pagan nation, 
Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaptor and the Syrians from Kir? He's saying, look, everyone's kind of had their own Exodus story. You're not even special in that regard. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. I'll destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I won't utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Behold, I'll command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations. It's one shakes with the sea, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. This verse 10 here contains a lot. Um, Amos teaches us, verse 10 here teaches us that sin is like a dangerous poison that will lead to our destruction. Um, Sin is not a game to be played with or a pet to be toyed with. Um, Sin is um, something that is dangerous. Sin is something that is um, ultimately destructive. Sin is something that must be resisted and rooted out and fought against in a Christian life. Um, Ignoring its presence or destructive power, like saying, surely disaster will never overtake us. I can play around with this sin or that sin and it'll never catch up to me. Is that best delusional and at worst, dangerous not only to yourself, but to everyone around you. Your sins, the consequences of your sins, affect the people who you love. Affect the people who surround you, who are involved in your life. And this has been kind of what the season of Lent has been all about, right? Taking sin seriously. Um, saying, let's, let's try not to keep playing with sin. And where we can find it in our lives, let's take it seriously and, and try to repent and turn around and try to root it out of our hearts and out of our lives. And so this morning I would ask you, are you taking sin seriously? Um, have you, are you looking for it, identifying it, repenting of it, rooting it out of your life? What steps are you taking? On Palm Sunday, we are reminded to consider our loyalty to Jesus. Um, On Palm Sunday, everybody seems very easily um, able to to be loyal and celebrate Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem. But the crowds very quickly turn on him and want him dead. And even his own disciples, one of them, turn on him. Palm Sunday is a, a, a time to question ourselves see what sin is actually there in our lives. How loyal actually are we to Christ? Are we loyal up to a point? Are we loyal up to this action or this behavior or this possession? Or have we completely surrendered our lives to Christ? So that's sin. Another big theme is is prayer. So if you will, look with me at Amos chapter 7. At the very beginning here. Chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 first two visions. This is what the Lord God showed me. There's the vision. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So the king's already got his crops. So the wealthy royal class are good to go. It's going to be the poor people who will go hungry during the season. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. He prays for them. He intercedes for them. That's what we call it when you pray for somebody else. 
and watch the Lord's reaction. In verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This word for relent, we don't use it a lot in English. Um, it's found often, especially in the Old Testament. It's a word for change your mind, regret, um, repent, to turn around, to change the course of action. Um, as we keep reading, we see something very similar. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. This the Lord relented as well, saying, It shall not be, as the Lord God said. Twice Amos intercedes on behalf of sinful Israel, and twice God decides not to send the judgment that he had already decided to send. Now this is just... Two examples in a long line of stories of the Old Testament where God's people, Moses, Abraham, or prophets, actually intercede on behalf of sinful people and get God to change his mind about a judgment he's already pronounced. Moses does this when God wants to kill all of the Israelites after the golden calf. He, he kind of bargains with God. He kind of argues with him, and God says it. He changed his mind. He said, okay, I won't kill all of them, like I said. Abraham does this. Abraham does this really unique bargaining game. Where he's like, how many people will it take that you can find? God's like, okay, if I find five people, I won't destroy the city. He's like, okay, but what about four? What about three? Intercessory prayer. Praying for other people is one of the things that Christians are called to do. And something that you only do if you believe three things. There's three kind of theological assumptions that stand behind it. The first that God hears and considers our prayer request. You don't pray if you don't think that God hears it and that he doesn't consider it. But someone who intercedes thinks not only is God hearing their prayers, but he's considering them. You also don't intercede on behalf of somebody if you don't care about them or love them. Amos shows his heart here for the Israelites. And why would you why would you ask God to spare someone if you didn't have mercy in your own heart towards them? And then the third and perhaps the, the most powerful assumption here, and most confusing maybe, is that those who pray and intercede do so because they think it can make a real difference regarding the future. Most of us, especially Christians, have a, a somewhat fatalistic, deterministic view of the future. That it's already set. There's nothing we can do to change it. Um, in particular, there's nothing we can do to change God's mind about the future, his actions toward the future. But again, to hold to this belief, you would have to scrub out so many important stories from the Bible. And there's really no way to interpret them once you get rid of this aspect of God relenting or changing his mind that makes the story significant in any way to the narrative of the Old Testament, to the picture that it gives us about God. Now, is there a neat formula to give you on, on how this works, right? If God knows the future and sees everything and it's all from one end and yet somehow... He's unchanging, but yet he can change his mind and do all this. There's no neat formula. There's, there's no 
There's no cute phrase I can give you. This is a mysterious truth. But if the question is, does prayer change people, the people praying and the people being prayed for, or does it change God? The scriptural answer is yes. There's no explanation given. We could we could look at explanations. We could offer explanations. I could spend 30 minutes trying to give you an explanation, but I'd rather just have you see the point here. People who intercede, intercede because they believe that the future belongs to those who pray. That God can and will and has changed courses of action because of the calling out of his people. Which brings me to a point that I, I bring up often when I talk about prayer, which is that Christians have a, a moral obligation to pray. Praying is not just a pious thing we do for our relationship with God. If it's true that our prayers could stop people from dying and give them a chance to repent and come to relationship with the Lord, then if we do not do that and they end up experiencing that, I can't imagine that we might not be held morally responsible. You had the opportunity to go to the boss and ask him to give him one more chance. Ask him not to fire him. And you did not do that. Intercessory prayer is a powerful tool that Christians have. And one that that we shouldn't be caught left in our, our holster. Again, as we journey towards Easter, I would wonder who you're praying for. These three or five people maybe that you're thinking about inviting or have invited. Hopefully they're people that you've been praying for. As you believe God hears and considers requests, you care about these people enough to pray for them. And because you believe that at some level, prayer works. Prayer changes reality. And so you intercede on their behalf, and you ask God to work powerfully in their life. And then you expect it. You can tell a lot about a person and their beliefs about God and their relationship with God with their prayer life. With how they pray, how often they pray, what they pray for, and then their expectations after their prayers. Someone who expects God to deliver and to answer on their prayers to someone who truly believes that God is listening and God is responsive to the request of his people. Are we praying for for the people in our lives that that don't know Christ? Are we interceding for them? On Palm Sunday are we are we praying and hoping for God's miraculous redemption? Are we praying and hoping that people would come to see and know Christ as their Savior. That, that God would remove obstacles. That God would use us in unique ways. And if we're not, I worry that we're being caught with one of the biggest tools we've been given. Paul says we fight a battle in this world in Ephesians. He says we don't fight it with swords. We fight it with other things. Truth and justice and the gospel and with prayer. Prayer is the weapon of the kingdom. Demolishes strongholds. Calls God to action. 
It works powerfully in the lives of people around us. So sin, it's danger, it's reality, prayer, it's importance, it's power. And then finally, redemption. If you look at the very end of Amos, chapter 9, starting in verse 11, Amos says this, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the shredder of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. Even after judgment and destruction, which is coming to Israel's way very soon, there's a glimmer of hope beyond it. In the scriptures, judgment is always, um, is never seen as the last word. It's always a necessary step on the way to redemption. You have to get rid of evil out of creation in order to have a good and perfect creation. These days, in that day, I'll raise up the booth of David that's been fallen. I'll bring back the kingdom of David. A kingdom will be set up for God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In the coming days, all of these things will happen. Christians unanimously in the first century and continuing through to today have interpreted these prophecies, those days, as referring to Jesus' first coming. Joel stands up and says, what's happening is what's been prophesied. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit. In Acts 15, they actually quote from Amos chapter 9. Where they're talking about whether the gospel should go out to the Gentiles. And they say, look, even in Amos it says, all the nations who are called by my name will come into this kingdom will be lifted up by the booth of David. So who are we to say that only Jewish people can be part of this kingdom? Even despite the sin and the judgment, Amos can't help, like most passages in scriptures, but end on a note of hope. Because with God, that's always how it ends. There's always hope. God never lets his story fail. End in an unintended way. God, like a masterful chess player, brings all things to completion. To consummation. In his beautiful kingdom. On Palm Sunday, we ask ourselves if we recognize that the one we're following is indeed the son of David, the Christ, the savior of the world. We, we wonder if we recognize, even as we follow him to the cross, as he's dying, that he is, in this way, accomplishing God's purposes. And as he resurrects, 
and his sins and sends us out into the world, we wonder if we truly have realized and committed our lives to this one, the one who has come to rebuild this kingdom, to restore the blessings that God has for creation, and to enlist us in that mission as well. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have given us. I thank you for um, the reminders in the scriptures about the danger and reality of sin. Um, you know, we might be more comfortable without having to think about it, um, but we wouldn't be safer. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be able to repent and search our hearts in order to get closer to you and find love and joy and goodness at your side. We thank you, Father, for the gift of prayer that, that we get to work with you in your plan of redemption in the world, that we get to have conversations with you, that we get to even intercede on behalf of others. I pray that, that you would encourage all of us to be interceders, to constantly be pounding on heaven's door in the name of other people that they would see and know Christ that they would come to know him and know his love and know his goodness and know the life that he has come to offer and I pray Father that that we would all recognize in your son the one whom all of creation has hoped for since day one that we would commit ourselves to him and to his mission it's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit that we pray. Amen.